Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We never even meant to be pop stars. Like, we ended up becoming pop stars. That was never a plan. I ended up turning to drug abuse a lot of the time because I was so fucking anxious going to these events. I won 500 quid from one of these competitions and that is literally how yeah. I began Rizzle Kicks. Imagine being a young man and suddenly have given money and notoriety. I suddenly was appealing, for example, to women in a way that I hadn't felt before. Like to be appealing to people based off of whether it was power or not or fame or not was definitely a rush. We became victims of our own success in a way. The pressure was pretty high. I was like, fuck, I think I need to speak to someone. Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of Working Hard, Hardly Working. Today, we have Jordan Stevens from Rizzle Kicks, which is very cool, a bit too cool for me. And he talks super openly about the kind of reality of being in the music industry, getting famous quite young, what that does to your kind of self-esteem and your mental health and how he kind of like honestly went through that, his struggles with addiction and how he's kind of come out the other end and how he lives his life today. It was a really, really interesting conversation about not just his career, but all of his kind of views around that and the industry as a whole and social media as a whole. And there's some topics that I always really want to talk about in terms of, you know, the idea of success, enjoying the journey rather than the destination. And his honesty and openness, I think, is really to be applauded. So I hope you enjoy this episode. And as always, have a fantastic day. Jordan Stevens is an English singer-songwriter, performer and rapper, best known for being one half of hip-hop duo Rizzle Kicks, who dominated the charts for several years, with their music still being heard on mainstream radio today. However, despite enjoying the success, Jordan came into the limelight when he was just a teenager, putting him through the hardship of the music industry at an extremely vulnerable age. Unaware he was suffering, Jordan veiled his depression with a toxic combination of booze and drugs to cope, hitting rock bottom when he tragically lost two people close to him. In writing his solo track, Whole, about his depression, Jordan realised he needed help. After embarking on a long journey of self-discovery in intensive therapy, Jordan is driven to change the stigmas surrounding mental health and has launched his own mental health initiative, the I Am Whole campaign. Supported by fellow celebrities, the campaign has had phenomenal exposure, reaching 120 million people in a day and even sparking further conversation about mental health in government. Perfect, so we'll just go straight into it. Thank you so much for joining me. No worries. Very excited to have you here and talk about your career, where you've come from and where you are now. I really appreciate how open you've been about a lot of it and I feel like that's very important when people are looking at either getting into an industry or just looking at like the reality behind people's success. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's there's not a lot of that online. So kind of going way back to the beginning, you started Rizzle Kicks with a friend from school, is that right? Carly, yeah. I, we went to college together, but we knew each other a bit before that. And what was like the catalyst for starting the band? It kind of came together because I was rapping already. I was making tracks. I was making tracks since I was like 13, not taking it very seriously. And then 
I heard a couple of songs, one by The Streets, I think it was Let's Push Things Forward off their first album, Original mm. Part Material, which is a classic. And then another song by, I think they were called like The Flowbots or something random, like this band um, called Handlebars, this tune. Mm. And either way, it was, it was basically a rapper or, you know, like a, a poet, I suppose. And then a singer was singing the end of the person's lines. And I thought, oh, I really want that. I'd love that in my rap song. So I asked Harley if he would be up for that in the studio and he did it. And then we decided to do a song where he did like eight bars and I did eight bars. And then that song, loads of our mates were like, oh, that's really good. Mm. And I was like, well, thanks. I've been fucking doing my own shit. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, then we realised that actually having the two of us doing it was quite unique in, in terms of us, you know, having like an equal footing and being a rapper and a singer. So we gave it a go, didn't go to uni in that gap year. We tried our best to start a career and it worked. Yeah, it really took off. And was it always your dream to be a musician or yeah. was it, what, what was kind of your original dream? I wanted to be a footballer yeah. until I was maybe 14, 15. I wasn't bad. I had trials for Charlton when I was a kid and mm. when I Charlton Athletic were good, sorry. Um, <laughs> and then Brighton. Calling people out already in the first 30 seconds. No, listen, I loved Charlton in their prime. Jason Yule, mm. fucking great. But... Brighton and Hove Albion, I went on trial for when I was about 14, I think. Mm. And um, like for a technicality, I never played any trial games or this kind of stuff. So I was kind of on the edge of it. But still, even at that point, even if I got signed to an academy, the chances that you actually make it pro yeah. are so slim. Mm. It's such a high pressure, wild environment. When you talk to people, there's so many people who were at academies yeah. and so many people who really thought that their career would be in either Sports. going into the Prem or like whatever. Mm. And I really want to look at the effect on people's you mental should, health you of these speak young, to boys young boys. Yeah, who, it's, it's, it's crushing. And who are essentially like kind of teed up to this is going to be, you know, everyone looks at all over the world doing football in the UK and, and playing in the Prem and making all this money and all of this. And it's kind of like teed up. And of course, the academies want to keep people in them in case they might be the best. And actually, mm. it really must like. Well, there's a cutting kill point. There's a young. cutting point when you're about. 17 or 18 mm. and at that point if you don't make it and you have no backup like and that's been your entire life since you're a little boy it's a lot to take that mm. you know it's a lot of pressure i think it's something like nine percent of all yeah. boys make it but anyway i was on the edge of it and i actually got distracted by just like smoking weed and i suppose girls at that point i was yeah. uh, my hormones had kicked in and the culture i was in at that time it was like i was asked by this coach to you know run a mile every morning and changed my diet and all this kind of shit. And I was like, no, nah, I'd rather just get high and write raps. And fortunately... That paid off. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a stoner, by the way. I can't be a stoner. I'm too much of a lightweight, but I did used to at least indulge. Yeah. And so when did that start changing from... Originally, obviously, football was your dream and then you kind of turned towards other things. But yeah. was there a single point that you kind of thought, actually, do you know what? Like, music could be it. I remember when I was younger, I just made music anyway. So my mum and dad, and I, as I was growing up, they're both musicians. They were both musicians. Mm. My mum's a very talented songwriter. My dad's a great songwriter and an accomplished musician. Yeah, you know, amazing. actually fuming that he never taught me how to play guitar. <laughs> but uh, I remember as a kid um, in, the, in our like, kind of council flat, my mum would have her lyrics all over the floor. And I remember kind of crawling around them. And, and I still remember kind of all of my mum's lyrics from when I was a kid. I naturally just started making music to deal with emotions, genuinely. Yeah. So like the first track, or maybe the second track I ever made was a diss on my school form tutor. <laughs> like, for real, like when I was in year eight, so that would have been 12. 
And then I was using it to kind of vent all this anger. Mm. And then as I got older, because I'd grown up in Neasden in London, in Brent, it was quite rough in Brent when I was there. And then when I went to Brighton, when I was about 10, yeah. I thought it was like a wonderland because mm. I was by the sea and everything was a lot more chill. It wasn't as much pressure. There's a certain point, I think, in when you're in certain areas in London, you know, there's a certain point when you get, you come of age almost, and then, and then you're confronted with other challenges. Yeah, yeah, yeah um, for sure. And so in Brighton, they weren't really there. I mean, there were some rough parts in Brighton, but I thought it was great. Mm. So when I started getting older, my raps were more like upbeat. Like yeah. I was like just buzzing to just be alive. And that grime had just kicked off around that time. Mm. Um, I mean, I don't know if it was the second time it kicked off or the first, but so a lot of the, the rappers in Brighton were like kind of emulating that London sound. Mm -hmm. And they used to take the piss out of me for being like a happy rapper. <laughs> so I was like, well, fuck it. I don't, at that point, I'm an only, I was an only child. Mm. And I just like was so used to my own company and just being in my bedroom and just teaching myself how to make websites and shit. I didn't really care if people embarrassed me or mocked me. And, and I really did get mocked. I used to get like some of the other rappers, like uh, almost like run like MySpace campaigns to like mm. take the piss out of me, serious. It was crazy. But I just stuck with it. And, and I, think, I think because I looked at all these music competitions, I used to love entering competitions mm. as a kid. I just thought competitions were the best place to exist because you never really knew. Like, you either win or you, it doesn't matter. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 you might you as well give it a go. Yeah, you don't get, like, hated on for not yeah. winning. So I just used to enter every competition. Seriously, like, I just used to Google, like, UK music competition yeah. and just enter all of them. That's so I good. just I ended every single one. I love the self motivation. Like that's not something you hear about actually a lot as like it was just a kid just being like <laughs> yeah pure competition and and then what it, it turned out that being like a, a fifteen year old rapper for, mm. like was really like quite unique to yeah. be entering a competition. So I'd end up in these like adult music competitions or like at least university level competitions and I'd win little awards like most original act or I won 500 quid from one of these competitions and that is literally how yeah. I began Rizzle Kicks was with that 500 quid. No way. Because I bought, yeah, I bought like an iPod to start off with. Mm -hmm. I actually bought the original beat to Down With The Trumpets from a dude in Whitechapel. No way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was like, and I, I just got that from a bursary from a competition that I entered. I didn't even win the competition, they just gave me 500 quid for like trying hard. That's unbelievable and I also think it just shows like how much even like small investment in the arts, just in terms of like getting kids just like doing more and more in terms of like music and arts and all of these things that aren't necessarily as encouraged in school. Like yeah. even just that, that one thing to have been the catalyst for essentially what ended up, you know, being, being your career. What, just that little bit of money. You yeah. Mean? Yeah, no, of course. I, like, listen, that's one of the tragedies of our current mm. government is that they don't put more money into arts. And I'm a patron of a charity called Audio Active, mm -hmm. um, which was the first kind of youth club I'd go to. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've, I've got taught, you know, all these rap techniques by these incredible mentors. Mm. And they put on things at the moment, one's called Room to Rant, where these young boys will come and utilise rap as a, as a form of like self-expression, you know, it, to, to keep, mediate their mental health. You know, it's just like, a, it's a wonderful space to exist in. Creativity is an essential part of being a human being. Mm -hmm. And it's a travesty that, that anyone would consider it's, cutting that funding. It's so insane. Just in general, when you think about it, of course, fine, it not, might not make money for the wider society, but like the actually valuing the output of like artists, musicians, all of that, just based on the monetary value is insane. Because but like, even if actually, you looked at it from a monetary value, yeah. I think artists are- Yeah, there's, are of like, course there's a business case for it, but like that's yeah. when, you know, when governments aren't investing in it, it's because they think they're not necessarily going to get the payback from it. That's, and, but that's, it, that, which is that insane. doesn't make any sense. Because yeah. if you take like, me and Harley went to the Brit school, right? Mm -hmm. 
I think the Brit School at the moment is struggling for funding, which is, again, Adele went to Brit School. Mm. Like, um, uh, there's a whole yeah, list. So Loyal Karner went to Brit yeah, School. Yeah. We went to Brit School. There's some incredible artists mm. who went to that school. But yeah, the funding's not there, apparently. That's what I'm hearing, mm-hmm. you know? that And it's like, that is an institution. Adele, just in her, as, you know, yeah. like is one of the flags of, of mm. the UK and will be for a very long time. Yeah. And so you'd got together and you'd created this band and it was, was Down With The Trumpets the first song that yeah. you created. Did that kind of immediately take off? No. That's what's so funny about music. Mm. I mean, this is actually a good point of reference for people who were trying now. Obviously, it's, it was different back then because we didn't have the onslaught of social media that yeah, we have now, this like ridiculous amount of pressure on an artist to self-market. Mm. But we did have MySpace, that was the equivalent. Yeah. And Down With The Trumpets, you know, I re-recorded it with Harley. I made it myself first, re-recorded it with Harley. And it was on our MySpace for like nine months. Like, not like... <laughs> yeah, nothing. <laughs> nothing, yeah. And then I bumped into this guy, I mean, I think the most like serendipitous part of my career was that I decided to go to my friend's family drinks one night, which is honestly was it's quite an unappealing mm. invite. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I went there and, and, and it was lovely, nice time. I loved that family. And uh, there happened to be this guy there called Toby Lockerbie, who was a wedding photographer. And I got chatting to him and he said, uh, do you want to see this video of my family's trip to Bath? Mm. And I was like... <laughs> Not really. Yeah. And then he showed me this video and it was unreal. And I was like, dude, how did you do that? And he was like, oh, I just got this function on my Canon 5D. I said, do you want to shoot a music video? And he was like, yeah, why not? It'd be fun. Shot a video down with the trumpets, put it up online and got signed like three months later. Unbelievable. And did he put it up on YouTube? Was it just kind of self-uploaded? We'd put the work in and that, you know, me and Harz were working hard, man. We put up our own website. We Mm. used to like upload blog posts all the time. I'd I'd released a mixtape on my own. Yeah. That was like knocking about on WordPress. Some people still tell me about that mixtape, which is crazy. So I had been, there had been, there was a small buzz mm. in place. They probably felt bigger at the time. It's when you're kind of looking back and it's, uh, you, you kind of see that steep incline when it all obviously oh, like mate. took off. But before that point, you would have been working in, like on it kind of every day. I used to nick views off the, like I used to, so basically on my mixtape, I would rap over already like um, successful songs, but mm. I used to pick songs specifically that no one else had rapped over. Mm. So I used to, I rapped over like Ain't No Other Man by Christina Aguilera, or I just p- tried to find these songs that would mm. be, it would be wild that someone would rap over it, made this mixtape. And obviously I'd catch a buzz if that song's popping off. Yeah. So yeah, so when Trumpets went up as an original, you know, Rizzle Kick song, I think there was that like thing of, oh shit, you know, and we were looking all flashing the video because the video had this shallow depth of field, which now, what made our video so incredible, you can, it automatically does on an iPhone. Like, really? Yeah, it's like that. the level of videography is on another fucking planet now. But back then, just purely by the fact that Toby could focus on someone in the foreground and blow it, we were mind blown. <laughs> Looked like, like we'd spent like 30 yeah. grand. We'd done it for nothing. Yeah. But now, you can't even get away with that because you can just do that on your iPhone. Yeah, that's insane. Did it start to take off first on YouTube or was it kind of... So it went first on YouTube. We got 100,000 views. Me and Harley could not fucking believe it. Mm. A record label came, we got offered a few different labels. We went with a, a, a guy called Nick, who's a legend. And um, one of the first things they said is, right, we're going to make a new video. And me and Harley were like... <laughs> no, the video's the thing. We were like, are yeah. you fucking kidding? And they were like, trust me. We managed to implement our old video into the new video because we were so attached to it. And we couldn't believe we'd let go of 100,000 views. But, you know, now it's on 
35 million or something crazy like that. Insane. Um, we put the song out and it entered into the charts at like 144, but then there's another beautiful moment where Fern Cotton heard our music. And, you know, again, we'd grafted hard enough to have everything in place mm. for that to happen. We yeah. didn't know she was going to hear our music. That was actually a wonderful accident through my godfather. It was wild that yeah. how that even happened. But she was like, who are these guys? But we had done BBC introducing, we had done the groundwork. Mm. So we were like, here's the song. But I think that's always the case is like, you see, we see a lot of like overnight success, quote mm. unquote. And for an overnight success to actually have any longevity at all, it's always the fact that actually there were like, there was so much graph before that point and fine, it didn't get as much traction as that thing after that like really took it off. Yeah. But actually, if you hadn't have done all of those other bits for people oh, yeah, to latch onto as well. I think that, and it is weird because I, we were an overnight success. And, and I think it's actually worked against us a, a little bit because, um, you know, people like to see journeys mm. and our journey was fucking wild. Like yeah. we were playing to like 40 people in Brighton, you know, our, mostly our mates. Mm. And then one song picks up on radio. It was in one month, our mm. life changed. And how was your first experience with your um, first record deal? Like at the time, me and Holly were just gassed to have money. Mm. That was it. Wasn't that much money in, in hindsight. Maybe at the time it felt like, for us it felt like fucking mm. loads of money. Yeah. But we were just over the moon. We just went out that night and just paid, bought everyone's drinks. Yeah. Right. And so you'd kind of been at this point catapulted into fame um the record deal came and the fame came like about nine months after right and that was through the was it through that specific song was it through we went into song? the studio and made a bunch of shit and we couldn't mm. even we couldn't even believe the label wanted to release down with the trumpets we were like you're insane you should hear yeah. this other shit we've been doing like yeah. to us that was old news and then trumpets came out and yeah it was number eight and it stayed in the charts for a long time two three months even it mm. was it was it, you know never went into the top five but like over time the numbers were crazy and then, and then that was it. And then, and then, you know, back then music videos used to be on telly all the time and everything's changed now. Yeah. It's, it's unbelievable yeah. how much the music industry in particular has changed. What was kind of next on that journey in terms of like solidifying yourself as, as artists and kind of like really growing in the scene? I think because of the success of Down With The Trumpets, we were quite quickly under, I wouldn't say pressure, but there was like a plan in place. At that time, major labels had more of an idea of how to make something mm. work. So... We had done this song with Fatboy Slim, Mama Do The Hump, and we knew it was a banger. Yeah. So we didn't want to like release it straight away. Yeah. So we put out another song called When I Was A Youngster and then we waited for Mama and Mama, you know, blew up and we dropped her album and that went really well. So it was just like, we were just capitalizing on it and we felt like we were everywhere for a minute. I don't know if, if I could even use the term like solidify it. It's, 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 an, it's a wild one because when I look back on it now, having seen people come and go and I, I, I'm, my interests have expanded and I've gone into other industries and still love music and me and Hals, you know, we have plans, but we were just riding the wave, man. Mm. And we never even meant to be pop stars. Like we ended up becoming pop stars. That was never a plan. Yeah. And the music I listened to, the music I grew up, grew up with wasn't necessarily pop music. I'd love some pop music. Yeah. Um, but it was, it became a bit of a different profession to what we'd expected. We, we love writing and creating music. Mm. Um, being a pop star is, I think, slightly different. It's yeah. a different thing. And, and we didn't like that so much. In that way, did you enjoy the kind of fame side of it? Getting famous in your early 20s has um, perks. Mm -hmm. There's like immediate highs, you know, um, especially as a young man, because you suddenly have this power. And I, for one, felt um, like a weirdo when I was a teenager. And so I suddenly was appealing, for example, to women in a way that I hadn't felt before. Mm. And um, 
again, looking back on it, I would probably take my younger self to the side and yeah. and still install a little more self-worth, you know, mm. but I suddenly like to be appealing to people based off of whether it was power or not or fame or not was definitely a rush. And then obviously we had a bunch of guys around us who wanted to have a good time too yeah. and would come on tour with us. And it was that, it was everything, you know, imagine being a young person, I mean, young man, and suddenly have given money and, and notoriety. So all of those things are, are, yeah, amazing. But it was stressful. Again, the way I, it was, uh, it's hard to differentiate between, you know, perks, the highs, um, and what was a coping mechanism, because I also got really bad paranoia. I ended yeah. up turning to drug abuse a lot of the time because I was so fucking anxious going to these events, you know what I mean? And I just didn't know what was going on. We had, yeah. we didn't, I didn't know how much money I had. I didn't know, you know, Harley didn't know really, I mean, Harley might have known a bit more, he's a bit more on it than me, but it was a wave, you know, and, and like, I didn't know myself at that point. Yeah. So that's the downside to, to gaining that, that, that attention at a young age. Yeah, I also think that, because we see a lot of it now, like we see a lot of people, especially with social media, a lot of like catapulting straight into fame. Right. And I also think that you, with any of that like sudden attention slash external validation slash like opinions from elsewhere, it's such a change in the way you live and like such a change in the amount of information you receive from other people, whether it's like good or bad, that I don't think anyone can get used to it that quickly so if it happens like really fast and to a really like high extent and then kind of like keeps going like that I can imagine it just being so so difficult to mm. actually like deal with all of the changes and also even know who you are because the amount of people around you as well like you don't know who's there for what you don't know I hear that a lot yeah and and I, I felt like I'd, we, we kept a reasonably tight circle mm-hmm in terms of that shit, maybe if you know you deep it in terms of like, yeah, the attention from women or or like I suppose kind of like temporary friends. Yeah, I, I can mm. see that. But um we were just like some scruffy, scrappy kids basically that had ended up in this space and I think that attention is, is a lot to take. Do you feel like you have had a shift in attention? You've got quite a following online now, right? So for me, it grew over a few years when I was, it was definitely too young. Like I've I've talked about before um, how for me, my change in, I guess, like attention on like online validation, all of these things, even if you don't notice them and even if you don't think about it in terms of like, oh, these people like me, it was at a stage where, you know, where you're like a kind of older end of a teenager and you're starting to really start to know yourself and you move probably from slight like self-conscious lots of insecurities into being a bit more confident in yourself and I think that I when my following started growing it was exactly at that point so I think I then about like three years later had a huge self-confidence crisis Mm. and kind of like who am I crisis because within that time I think what I thought had been replaced by like teenage self-consciousness had been replaced by like confidence and knowing who I was I think had actually actually been replaced by external validation and like people online and like no I don't think I did and I think I thought I did because I was like happy with myself because other people would be happy with me and like outwardly saying that it's insane but it was also like there was a point there where I just stepped away completely from social media because I was like I actually don't I don't know myself was it what was it that you think built your audience 
at the beginning of kind of like when I started social media, I literally started it because I was trying to get into, not even get into fitness. I was like a teenager trying to like stick to going to the gym, right? Ah, and so you're documenting it to make sure you stayed there. Yeah. So it wasn't even from That's a point of like expertise. It was literally like, <laughs> fucked it again. Yeah, like yeah, didn't yeah, go yeah. today, you know, all of this. And so we document that. And I think the reason That's why it grew quite quickly at that stage was actually because the majority of like influencers slash people you could see with followings online, like there wasn't really there weren't really that many people who'd grown from social media. It was more like influencers were actresses, musicians, like athletes, like all of these things. They were, it was from another platform that they'd become influencers or like famous or something. Actually, here's a mad one for you. I was in the meeting in a record label for Instagram. Like I remember we'd already popped off at this point. We were on Twitter Mm. and they were like, listen guys, you got to get this app called Instagram. And I'm like, no. You know, and they're it's like, like what my manager said about TikTok. Yeah. And they're like, you know, no, you get to show your fans what you do in a day. And I was like, why would I do that? Yeah. Why would I want them to see? I respond, I wanted my privacy. So I was battling it from then, mm. you know, and it's just fascinating to see it now. So when the stories came and then there was this understanding that you could have engagement on stories. I mean, I clocked it a little bit last year, but it's just not, it doesn't come naturally to me. That's mm. not how, how I think. But when you kind of got to that point that you were like really kind of going up in the music industry, you're obviously, as you say, you're like surrounded by people you never thought you'd be surrounded by. How quickly did it take you to kind of realise that you were kind of facing some of the negatives of that as well? The point at which it became a, stru- a stress was uh, we became, I guess, victims of our own success in a way. The pressure was pretty high. We would have still been very young, 22, 23, and felt as though we were boxed into a space that was mm. outside of our control. Right. Uh, I mean, that with the pop star thing. And I got really into drugs at that time. And then also just shit happened in our lives. People died. Uh, relationships were hard. Things that are supposed to mature you. Mm. But, you were, but I was in a kind of suspended state of adolescence in a mm. way because we were 18 when we yeah. became famous. People say that a lot, that you stay the age that you become famous and obviously not if you put a lot of work in after that point but you know at that point you have a lot of people come around you and almost shelter you and like yeah. bubble wrap you from the outside world because you're there to perform and to make money with, yeah. with whatever like sector it's in whether it's football whether it's any of these things you're literally there yeah. to be like a fucking racehorse like yeah. to make that money to do those things yeah. you know we had to deliver the second album uh we dropped the second album it didn't do as well as the first album but it did well mm. you know like it did well but I had made a couple of decisions uh which were I'd say anti-pop decisions I'd chosen to put certain songs out that that the label would have preferred a poppier song or I didn't put songs on the album at all that the label thought would do well or all this kind of shit but I wanted to I wanted to Mm. I know what music that me and Harley wanted to make and we tried to stick to it but then from that point label started like saying no to things and also music was changing and, and I think from about that point onwards uh we took a year off me and Hulse to do our own thing we're making our own different music because we were wanting to just express ourselves in different mm. mediums and then when we came back round to it you know we were making this third album and streaming had just started to come into effect and it was just like a shambles in the industry and Harley was struggling with anxiety as well which suddenly came about in this year we had off and I was just like I don't think it's worth it man I don't think we need to put ourselves through this we're just young I just wanted to grow up I just mm. wanted to make sure that we both became stable men. Yeah. And if you saw someone kind of going into that situation now, say like just starting to take off being signed by a label and kind of riding that wave, what kind of advice would you give to them given kind of what you went through? I wonder sometimes, you know, how it would have been if... 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We weren't so rushed. Like, like we didn't mean to be rushed. You know what I mean? Like to be successful really quickly is great. That's mm. not normal. Um, and we did so well, we, we were yeah, objectively were. a success. You know, I think we should have been in a space where we weren't put on this wheel. Yeah. I think if we'd given a bit more time, I wouldn't have had to get into conflict with, with the powers that be. I wouldn't have had to, like, stood my ground and been like, mm. listen, I'm, I think our mental health should be priority. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, for anyone young, I just think don't, don't, don't rush, man. Don't, like, stress about it. And I think, you know, I've seen artists since then in the last 10 years, artists who, at that time, were just starting out when we were, you know, killing it. And there's some of them that's taken them up until last year to reach like, and I'm like, fuck yeah, man. And people yeah. get to see the journey and it's, and it's like, I think you strengthen on, in, during that process. But nowadays it's difficult for me to give advice because it's so different. Yeah. You have so much more control. Uh, well, you have so much more control and so much more pressure mm. because the thing that's fucked about music is, and maybe most arts at the moment is because you can market yourself constantly you're almost burdened with the reality that whenever you're not marketing yourself, you're not working. Right, and I know in music there's often this like cycle where you're in a promo cycle or you're out of it. Like you're either about to come out with an album or you're you know coming out with yeah, one but a while a later. Promo cycle. So whereas now it's literally like a constant promo yeah. cycle. Otherwise, you're out of the public. Yeah, exactly. Interest. Exactly. That's exactly it. Which is but. insane. And so you've you've said publicly before that you kind were kind of got into this cycle where when you'd feel bad in yeah. that time, you you drink. And then you'd obviously oh. after that, you'd obviously kind of inevitably feel worse in an industry that's kind of revolves a lot around like partying and going out and all of that. Like, how do you even get out of a cycle like that? It wasn't even the partying that made it a problem. It was when I started doing drugs at home mm. because amphetamines or like uppers. I didn't realise the extent of my ADHD at that time. And mm. I was kind of oddly self-medicating. But then I became obsessed with fitness, actually, weirdly. Uh, at about 24 and that took me off the drugs I actually became initially my first stint of sobriety I did myself and um, because I had like I was drinking a lot mm. I was drinking like I don't know like 35 cans a week or some shit I don't even know what so I was balancing off the harder drugs I was doing yeah and um, I put on a bit of, I put on weight and shit <laughs> and I remember I went on holiday and I was just like fuck <laughs> Um, relative to me so I was like fuck this and then obviously I've got an addictive personality so mm. I, I literally just got addicted to the gym ended up doing stupid hours took me out of the of the cycle I mean that's a huge achievement in itself to do a stint of sobriety like from that point mm. by yourself I mean usually it takes a lot to you know get people to even seek help to acknowledge you probably need help in some way and to also mm. administer that help yourself I mean it takes a lot of I know you say it's because of like an addictive personality in another way but it takes a lot of self-control and yeah well I mean it's just as a message to people generally like the more love you show your body the, mm. the, the, the easier it is to hear it it tells you what it needs yeah and I fortunately met my best one now one of my best friends Mackenzie who I love he is was my personal trainer mm. and then became one of my closest friends 
And, you know, I didn't know anything when I went to him. I didn't know about nutrition. I didn't understand it. And he was showing me the way that like, he was explaining to me about food, explaining to me about exercise. And I was like, all right, cool. Clicked into it. And I felt like that was a much better use of my time. Mm. And then I was conflicted about going out and the drugs. And, uh, you know, I, I had, but I was definitely doing it less. Uh, but all of this shit is kind of as a means of survival. Mm. You know, I've, I, I tend to pick myself up, even if it gets a little bit close to the edge. But I do wonder if I'd thrown myself back into the kind of machine after that second album. I do wonder. Mm. I, did, I did think at the time that I'm not sure if I would have even survived that, to be honest. Because yeah. there's a reason why there's so many tragedy, tragic stories about young entertainers. Because it's just like a fucking violent world to be in. Mm. Mentally and spiritually. Yeah. You see a lot of it mm. in the press and there's a lot of like, why does it happen? And then you look at the way the industry works and it's kind of like... The music industry, the music industry is fucking wild. Mm. There's a guy called Robert Greene, quite a contentious author. He wrote a book called The 48 Laws of Power. He wrote that book because of um, what he'd seen in Hollywood. Mm. He says the music industry is the worst industry he's ever seen. He says it's like, it's, it's, it's undeniably more exploitative. Mm. And it's, it's, it's insane how it works and what artists are, expect, are expected to do and what mm. they get back. Well, I guess like the whole industry works and the fact that there are these People in the industry all the time, aka the the producers, the publishers, the promoters, like all of these. And then there are people who come through that industry that are the people who have to actually make the industry work, like the the talent themselves. So the musicians, the songwriters, all of that. And so all of these people around them actually have to get the most out of these people because it doesn't work without them. And so it's almost like they go into it as it's like a processing machine. Like it's yeah, but like they, they them. yeah, they, no, 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 exactly. What's, what's I'm mad is it's like it's being treated as machines. Yeah, Azealia Banks made an, a, a good point on on Instagram recently where she was talking about like the fact that you know a, an employee, a reasonably high up employee at, at you know I don't know Spotify or wherever, they'll be on a salary a year, at a decent salary. I don't know what that would be, but that comes with a lot of, lot of benefits, you know, like um, healthcare and all this stuff. Mm. Artists have no like if if they're not if they're not like promote like you say promoting or creating or whatever else. There's no infrastructure to support their well-being, and there's definitely nothing that's paid for in that regard. No consistency, and everything is pretty much on an artist's shoulders. And also, the other deep thing is that a lot of artists are using a side of their brain that isn't necessarily mm. a structured, business-minded, you know, like ruthless like way. You know, so they they're easily exploited because they ultimately just want to make art. Mm. I, a lot of like. I'm not a business-minded person. I've had to fucking learn on my feet or get people around me who I trust. Yeah. Because ultimately, people want to make money. And the people at the top of the music game make a ridiculous amount of fucking money. Like, a stupid amount of money. Yeah. And, like, it, it just doesn't bear... And then now, in this generation of, of self-marketing, it's like you've got this kind of content farm thing going on where people are just there, just making content. Like, the fact that content is such an accepted word. Mm. You know? And, and, and it was interesting. I saw a tweet recently... Where someone was going, everything's content. This is a guy who works in the industry. He's trying to do a, you know, positive spin on the independence of artists. And they were like, he was like, the stigma around content is ridiculous. Everything's content. You made a new song, it's content. You got a tweet, it's content. And I'm like, yo, listen, I hear your point, but people know the difference between content and art. Like mm. they just do, you know. Like content is, is cool. Like it's, it's great to it's great to have an audience and interact with that audience. Yeah. That's great, but. Some people are good at making things and they want to present those things. Mm. If they have to like, you know, show you what they're doing, what they're eating for breakfast and they don't want to, that's when it becomes yeah, content. I completely agree. And I think the biggest problem with that as well is it 
convinces people that any moment they're not working or like churning out this idea of content because everything can be work and because everything can be monetized or can be content yeah. it's making you feel like every moment where you're just existing rather than putting something out you're essentially foregoing success do you know what i'm trying to say foregoing, yeah do you know how wild that sentence is that you just said yeah every moment you're existing yeah and the, the like we are not made to need to output at every moment of the day. Like I, I got onto TikTok, for example, the, for the first time in March. Like before that point, I had downloaded it for one weekend, literally hadn't even had anything else. Now. I think it's amazing. And yeah. I think in certain ways, the like the defiltering it's like yeah. had on the industry, I think is amazing. But like the amount of things, because it's so unfiltered yeah, yeah, exactly. and because it's so easy to put out content that could you be anything. You can constantly anything. think, why I haven't done, yeah. why I haven't done that? It's why like, oh, why am I brushing trend? my teeth without fucking doing it? And it's, it's like, yeah. because everything can be monetized and because everything can be content, anything that's not is automatically you being lazy or deciding not to make money or any of these things and i think when that's applied to a label as well and then taken down to their artists essentially what that means is you could always be producing but more. what's fucking mad is there used to be people at labels who'd be employed to help you market your mm -hmm. shit but now it's up and to now you. they can just look at someone who's popping and go yeah we'll give you some money mm -hmm. and we'll put up a billboard mm. which is really really tough because it puts the whole machine on the artist and actually the artist is there to do the art. <laughs> it's wild. Listen, like labels have a, a place because they've got loads of money mm -hmm. and they can definitely push things. You know what I mean? And, and like, that's why people will still do deals. And, and especially if you want to move internationally, there's contacts, you know, there's the, that's the way. Yeah, Every, Everything's like, <laughs> everything, everything works in the same way. It's all like drug dealing. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just all people, they gain power over particular spaces. They make sure other people can't access those spaces unless they have them. They have leverage, you know what I'm mm -hmm. saying? Mm -hmm. So, but there is also, I suppose the, the upside of social media is you can, if you have a business mindset, yeah. have people around you, you can maintain independence and become successful. Mm. But for me personally, yeah, seeing the extent of, of, of what you have to give nowadays to be a musician, I think it's pretty fucking wild. If you did it again, would you go through the same route of going via a label with, say, if social media was yeah. like it is now? I think now, if I came out now with access to the tools, I think I'd be all over TikTok. Mm. I think I was a little grafter. Same yeah. thing. I was like, I was working at it, man. If I had something to promote, I'd probably make fucking 10 TikToks a day. Yeah. Because I was just in a different mindset back then. Of course. I'm kind of imprisoned by the reality that I've seen everything happen. Yeah. And you've spoken openly and you, you spoke just then about your ADHD diagnosis and yeah. how at one point it actually hadn't kind of properly been diagnosed or you didn't yeah. necessarily like know about it. What made you go and get that diagnosis and how, how, why do you think you, I guess, hadn't been? I got diagnosed with ADHD because I, uh, I took some of my friend's ADHD medication in New York. It's called Adderall. Everyone mm -hmm. fucking loves this shit, even if, got ADHD, even if they haven't got ADHD. Mm. People take Adderall because it's like some super focused drug. Yeah. And I, again, I was early 20s at this point. I honestly did not realise that people could think before they spoke. I thought if people weren't speaking, they weren't thinking anything. And I took this, this medication and suddenly I was given this option to decide whether or not I wanted to say something. And I turned to a friend and was like, can you think about what you're saying before you say it? Mm. And they were like, yeah. I was like, fuck, I think I need to go speak to someone. Because I, I didn't, I was that impulsive. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, and then since then, I've tried to gain an understanding of it. And uh, certain things that I've managed to grow out of with being more kind to my body, like nutrition mm -hmm. and exercise and, you know, regulating caffeine and stuff like that. Uh, but there's some, still some things I struggle with and, I'm, and I, 
especially around organization, which I, which I work on. But I came off on medication. I got medicated for it for a few years, but actually had quite a powerful like um, psychedelic trip and, mm-hmm. and just stopped taking my medication. But I would not, like, I can't, that's just me. Just a uh, doctor's... No, no, uh, I'm saying, I'm saying that, <laughs> was, yeah, that, was a, that was a, yeah, it's a particularly, like, wild experience. Yeah. And um, I've tried to take it since, it just isn't the same. Yeah. And I, I would say to the people who have ADHD <clears throat> with medication, like, um, I think maybe the goal is to be off it. But it is important, <clears throat> I think, for people with ADHD to see that there is a different way of being. Mm. There's a guy called Andrew Huberman, who's a really impressive... Oh, you yeah, watch yeah. him. So he does an episode of ADHD on yeah. ADHD. And he said something really interesting, which was like the optimum way of using medication supposedly would be to do things that you would struggle with whilst you're on a medication just to see how it's done. And then you can maybe have that neural pathway, which I think is like a really logical way That's of That's so it. interesting. Yeah, I know. It's like, oh, this is how it's meant to be so done. Like, now take I can take the medication, yeah, tidy somewhere and just re- remind yourself of that, that, that part of your brain can function. But... Again, I think there are so many contributing factors to ADHD and it's difficult to differentiate between anxiety and ADHD. Mm. And we live in a world where everybody abuses their bodies mm. constantly because we're encouraged to. I have this conversation on a daily basis. Like the, the, Our world's relationship with food is fucking dreadful mm-hmm. and makes me really sad. And it's one of these things where like, I battle with my own things like body dysmorphia and shit like that. But sometimes I wonder if I'd even have these battles if I wasn't constantly fucking force-fed shit you know, and how people's minds are supposed to function properly when they're eating shit mm. and they're not exercising. And also we have language that encourages unhealthy behaviours. It's encouraged for us to go out and get fucked up. It's encouraged for somebody to eat. Again, just as a disclaimer, I'm not, I'm not a practitioner. Yeah, this yeah, is stuff yeah. I've picked no, up no, on. No. So like fasting is really popular at the moment, mm-hmm. right? Especially in men. I think it mm-hmm. might be slightly differently chemically yeah. with women. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Aside of what anyone wants to do with fasting, there's genuine scientific evidence to back up the idea that if you allow your body to repair itself for like 18 hours plus, like just on fluids or water even, your body enters a state of repair. That's just the truth, right? You don't have to all the time, whatever else. Some people do intermittent fasting and and, uh, I believe actually in intuitive eating. I kind of think you should, Mm -hmm. but you should have it in in your artillery to be able to not... But I think the person who discovered the benefits of fasting won like a fucking Nobel Prize or some shit, right? But now, if you tell, if you encourage someone to eat less, it's rude. But if you encourage someone to eat more, it's it's loving, which is from an age yeah. where we were living off of rations. I wasn't, right. but where food was scarce, especially yeah. if you're working class. Mm. But now it's fucking on its head, isn't it? Mm. All the all the shit food is cheap, and people are gorging, you know. Yeah, it's an education issue and it's a huge yeah. class issue because if you're creating, if you're, well, essentially in a society that I guess is, by by the way it values things, it's kind of subsidising that shit food. Yes, and it's rich not, people can afford yeah, healthy food. Yeah, exactly. they completely... They've, and they've so it becomes something that, as you say, has flipped on its head in terms of the, um, you know, it previously being rich people who could sign, eat, you know yeah. eat a lot more food and it's it's flipped the other way and it that has so many more issues also access to healthcare and better healthcare is going to be by people who are have more Listen, access to it's money wild. it's wild and so making the nutrition also and all of these other things far worse to people you know the living standards the you know the for example like the council provisions like a lot of all of these things that are available it like it's this 
hugely like self-perpetuating cycle, like exacerbating all of these issues between the well, between classes, between like income levels and all of these things. It's I mean, it's insane. And you're like completely, I completely agree that all of it in terms of those things like food, like it very much comes down to these things as well that we consider maybe not as big. We consider it just like, oh, yeah. Well, I, 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 I think, you know, like I, I, you, you, it's fuel for your body. Mm. Like, you know, if people are struggling with their mind. That's one of the first places you go to and exercise. I mean, you'll know that. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's imperative like to keep the body working. But it's hard when they've got like incredible fucking TV shows dropping every single fucking day, mm. you know, when you can deliver groceries to your fucking door, you know, like it's hard to get into that mindset. And one thing that breaks my heart a little bit, again, I'd love you to speak on this because of your own journey with the gym, but I know what it feels like to be in a slump, normally around Christmas <laughs> or around winter. I don't mm. actually really celebrate. I mean, my girlfriend celebrates Christmas. Mm. They have a great Christmas and I'm, I come along. And, the, and you get stuck in this mentality of like, oh, I could just do fuck all because you're eating shit. Mm. That's kind of, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And you get out of it, Three months into working out, running, you have the, you get it. You want to eat things that keep your body going. You want to eat things that keep your mind going. I put, that's actually one of the only TikToks I've ever done was encouraging people to do this mm. because it's like you have to give your body those messages and they, it gets back to you. Yeah. But I struggle, I see people and it's like they're just slumped. Mm. And the idea of there being a space where they want to move is so far. And I just like, one part of me is just like, I wish they would know that feeling. Yeah. Um, but it is so hard. I'm, I don't think it's easy. Mm. I really don't. No, I really, no, really, really don't think it's and easy. And I think it's harder than ever in like a world where ever. you're essentially like multi-billion dollar companies are vying for your, for your Mate, kind of attention every day. you've got sponsoring football, bro. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Well, yeah. And also just the fact that like your attention, like in terms of social media, it's like they are paying for your attention. Like your eyes on this thing. If we look at our screen time now, it is actually no, I don't, insane. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> What's yours? I don't want to talk is about it. Is it double figures? Be honest. No, it's not double okay, figures. Cool. But I know people who it that's is and you genuinely think about it and you're like, huh, Yeah. that's what I'm, it's insane. And, and how do you now, how do you consistently keep yourself healthy and not, not just healthy in terms of like body and everything, but healthy in terms of your mind, how you're thinking about your work, how you're thinking about your life, like all of these things that you've had a big journey in terms of going through? Uh, I don't know because I, I Again, the funny thing with me and health is I've I've I unfortunately picked up a kind of mild body dysmorphia. Mm. Same mild. It goes up and down yeah. depending on what's going on in my life. But that was really unfortunate. That was just because of stacking like with a control well, it's a control issue. Mm. So even though I like to be in good shape, I'm hard on myself. And mm -hmm. I think actually a lot of guys and girls perhaps suffer from that when you actually are in shape. So you have to find that happy middle. You can't anything taken to an extreme is is, mm -hmm. is unhealthy, you know? So there is also a world where being healthy becomes unhealthy. If it, 100%. You know what I mean? So it's about finding that balance. But I mean, obviously when I was talking before about food and exercise, it's more on a general level. Yeah. Nowadays, I'd say the, the, the most straightforward things I've had to do in order to maintain my mental health is actually stopping things. I stopped drinking coffee, mm -hmm. which is pretty wild. I've now reintroduced caffeine a little bit, but I stopped drinking coffee um, for about three months, four months and was on decafs mm. and like I say I, I love matcha mm -hmm. um, but and then also sometimes when I work out now now after having this thing I'll have a little bit of like a coffee like caffeine drink mm. but the coffee culture was too much for me I'd, I wouldn't know how to limit myself I'd end up drinking coffee too late yeah I'd get really anxious in the evenings so I fucked off coffee I stopped smoking somehow which is fucking weird 
I don't even know why that happened. That was actually when I was fasting. I just stopped smoking. It was so weird. But I think that's had a good impression on my mental health. Like, I'm, like I do dip, but I'm able to like yeah. rebalance myself a lot faster without going to, you know, because basically you go to vices, right? Or I go to vices when I get knocked. So before I'd have loads of vices, you know, drink, whatever, drugs, um, sex, da 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 and then it's just like, as I've got older, I've just kind of like limited the vices. And sometimes yeah. like the worst that's happened to me recently is I just ate cake for a day. <laughs> <laughs> like that was the, that was, that was like, like me having a breakdown recently. Yeah. But, but that, I think I, I, I gave myself that compassion. Yeah. I was like on balance. I think it's really important to know yourself and know these things that are your kind of your downfalls or your vices or like any of these things. But actually also say like when you said that you just had a day where you just like, fucking 8k I also think that it's really important to be able to put yourself in a place where it's like I'm not always going to control the things I can control and I'm just going to like let myself in this moment yeah because otherwise you're constantly getting yourself into like this cycle of failure it's like you always like there are always going to be things that like either distract you or you didn't do as well as you wanted to and all of this and like if we're so harsh on ourselves that it that always sets us back then that's going to turn you to other vices yeah and I am hard on myself in terms of kind of like relationships and having got into fame so young, mm. I can imagine that kind of self-destructive cycle that you talked about would have had like a really negative effect on things like your relationships, whether like friendships, romantic relationships, whatever, when you're kind of first really getting to know yourself. Did you find that that was kind of particularly hard to deal with when you were kind of, I guess, shooting up into fame? I was a shit boyfriend and I personally, you know, struggled to even understand how to mediate friendships, how to nurture them. Something I've had to learn from through pain and, and mm. growing up and loss and heartbreak. And, you know. Yeah. And I can imagine as well in an industry that's probably quite lonely at times as well. It's also Well, I was fortunate to, to have Harley. Yeah. Even that, the pressure would fracture us in ways, you know. I want you to talk about your children's book that you've written. What kind of spurred this? So it's actually actually quite a good segue because the kids' book that I've written is about me battling with my own obsession with completion. Obviously, I've written this story and it's in the context of a kids' book Mm -hmm. and it's for kids. I've written it in a way where there's, you know, repetition and and it's been beautifully illustrated by a wonderful woman called Beth Susanna. Colours are fucking phenomenal. And, you know, I want kids to be engaged and it's a journey and it's an adventure. Mm. But ultimately the story itself is, I want to write kids books so when the adult's reading it to the kid, it's something, it's for them too. I love that. And it's about a little girl who loves finishing jigsaw puzzles. She's obsessed with the feeling she gets when a jigsaw puzzle's completed. The second one's done, she finds another puzzle. And she just does all these puzzles, all these puzzles. And she says to her gran, if I finish all the puzzles in the world, will I be sad forever? And her gran says, do you think puzzles is what makes you happy? And she says, yes. And her gran says, all right then, I'm gonna give you a puzzle. And she gives her a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle and she's buzzing. So she starts putting this jigsaw together, da 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 and there's one piece missing. And she's like, no way, I've got to find this missing piece. And so she goes looking for it. But, you know, you'll have to read the rest of the book to find out. <laughs> but, the, you know, the, the, it's, it's, it's about where our priorities lie as human mm. beings. Yeah. And actually, like, about being okay with the idea of something not being finished. Yeah, I love that. And I love that you've decided through that to kind of go straight to the root and go to 
kind of in terms of going to children, but also, as you say, it's got like a bigger meaning for, um, you know, for the person reading the book to the kids. Massively. And it was just because of a fucking thought process I had. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Bordering on revelation in my mid-twenties. Mm. I'm like, why? Am I, I'm always looking for something. Mm-hmm. Which is okay, a bit. But like, all of us as a society are just constantly obsessed with something. We like want something, but to, to want nothing might be, might, that might be the greatest freedom we could oh, have. hundred percent. To just be, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and to, to kind of be happy and some with people, you are. Some people have, mm. to, some people need things, mm. right? Maybe there's a differentiation between need and want. Mm. But it's like, I was just, I remember just being in a field, man, just like looking out and being like, maybe I can be okay with just like being in this field. <laughs> I'm just like, maybe this, this is pretty great. Like, I'm just, you know? Yeah. And just being, I guess, like, learning to be okay with where you are, even if you have things to get to. Like, even if you have big goals and even if you want to get to X, Y, and Z and tick off all of these things, like, we have such a, like, societal look at things as, like, the achievement is in the end goal. Yeah. And it's like, well, if there's never an end goal, because our, our signpost keeps moving as to what the end goal is, then we're never going to get to that. Like, if happiness comes at the end goal and the end goal keeps moving, we're fucked. <laughs> Literally. Like, that's the whole problem. You have so. to look at it as, for, through like a, as, like, a game almost. But everybody needs a purpose. Everybody needs goals. But I don't think that it's that good of an idea to make the goal your identity mm-hmm. like the achievement of that goal actually the process of achieving that goal should be the should be what we focus on 100% what do you think how do you feel with that do, are you one of these people who wins and then just moves on so i have such a problem with the idea of like success and like defining success for myself because i've always been like a a person who wants to tick things off like i want to i want to do this and i want to do this and i'm like very ambitious and i'll always set myself like the next level like what i want to get to but the problem with that is exactly what we were saying like if when i get somewhere of course the next place i want to be is further down the line yeah. and then if my happiness or sense of achievement is coming from getting somewhere then by definition i can never reach that happiness that i'll get from this idea of success yeah so for me I've had such a journey within the past few years and I'm nowhere near completing it, but I've had like such a journey in terms of actually allowing myself and continuously saying to myself as well, because I know I'm not naturally a person who quote unquote enjoys the journey. I'm naturally a person who enjoys the like hustle. Like I want to get there and that's important and that's so good for like ambition, but actually if you can't enjoy that journey, you are never going to be happy because that end goal is always 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 going to move mm. and I know that that's like one of my biggest downfalls so for me it's just been constantly checking myself and constantly being like you're happy now because you have that feeling of like excitement that you're about to get there actually just sit in that happiness yeah. like sit in that and enjoy that because 
we can't always be striving. We can always be striving for the next thing and it's really good to be striving for the next thing. But if that's what you base your happiness on, mm. you're always going to be like selling yourself short. It's true. And what a point to end on. <laughs> Thank you so much. That was brilliant. My really pleasure. Appreciate-